Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens today. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Gail Carriger, whose first young adult novel, Etiquette and Espionage, is being published in February by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. Carriger is the author of the best-selling Parasol Protectorate series for adults, which takes place in the same world as this new series. Etiquette and Espionage, the first book in the Finishing School series, is set in the Victorian era in an alternate version of our world. It's a world that includes vampires, werewolves, and mechanical butlers, but where certain attitudes about class, gender, and race can still be found. In the novel, 14-year-old Sophronia Temenek is devastated to learn that her mother is having her sent to finishing school. However, her attitude changes when she learns that the school's idea of finishing involves information gathering, combat training, and the art of subterfuge. Gail, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much for having me. You know, there's so much to talk about with this book. It's, uh, it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, can you start by talking a little bit about uh, this book's relationship to your Parasol Protectorate series? Sure. The Etiquette and Espionage books take place about 22 years before the Parasol Protectorate books. And the focus is a little bit different because it is young adults. Um, and so the characters, the, it still has the sort of same humor and irreverence that characterizes a lot of my work. Um, but the character younger and the kind of storyline and the perspective on the, the world is a little different. Okay. And you know, I saw you said in, in an interview that YA was in some ways your entry to the writing world. Uh, can you explain uh, what you meant by that? Sure. Young adult literature is still my favorite literature to read. So um, I, of course, found YA when I was younger. And basically through that discovery, I formed a close-knit friendship group. And those girls are still some of my best friends and they still read and beta edit my work today. And so I kind of feel like YA is my roots, uh, specifically the author Tamara Pierce, her Alana Song of the Lioness series is still something that when I'm sad or down, I'll go back and reread those books. Um, and still to this day, young adult is what I, what I reach for off the bookshelves. I feel like it's um, a tidier way to read in a way. It, it's something that I can fit into a short space of time and, and get immersed in really quickly. And so the best YA, I think, is still the best literature out there. And, uh, you know, in that case, has writing YA always been in the back of your mind? It has. I think like many authors out there, I have a trunk full of novels that never got published and probably never will get published. And they're all young adult in my case. Solace was the first adult book that I tried to write really intending to try and sell it. So um, I just kept trying YA and trying YA and nothing I wrote, nobody seemed to like it. <laughs> so I thought I would, I would try adult for a little while, but I basically wrote and I still write my adult the same way I, I, I write young adult, which is I write adult bare bones to a shorter word count and then that is comfortably young adult in length. And then I'll go back in and kind of put in extra complexity and extra threads and, and fill in descriptions and things like that to bring it up to length for an adult market. Well, you know, a finishing school is certainly the, the right kind of setting. And um, this book in a lot of ways feels like a natural lead in to your later books. Was that part of the plan? I don't think I, I really had a, a plan per se going in. I just 
basically, um, my editor at Little Brown came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in, I know you like young adult, would you maybe want to write some? And of course, I was like, absolutely, I'm so excited. So um, the fact that, that I got the opportunity was really you know, super exciting to me. And then I, I just wanted to kind of continue to explore the same universe from a different perspective. And so, and from a different point in time, I just love the Victorian era. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, let's just go earlier on to the Victorian era where the dresses are even more ridiculously big and floofy. <laughs> um, and speaking of Solace, which you just mentioned, uh, it was the recipient of the American Library Association's Alex Award, um, I believe in 2010, which is given to adult books with teen appeal. Um, over the years, have you heard from teenagers who are already reading your books? I've, I've heard from a few of them. I'm, I'm pretty active in social media. So I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter. And you don't always know how old the people are who are in, interacting with you. But I do know that some of them are quite young. I think my youngest reader is was nine or 10. And uh, I think she wasn't supposed to be reading the books. <laughs> <laughs> But um, most of them tend to be, uh, the youngest tend to be around 14 or, f- or 15 for Solace. And now I noticed that uh, several of the surnames that appear in your Parasol Protectorate books are also present here. Uh, LeFou and Macan, for instance. Uh, is it safe to say that there is going to be plenty in this new series for your existing fans to discover and appreciate as well as new readers? Absolutely. It's uh, very much... I call it cookies or sort of rewards for the for the careful reader or the loyal reader and so there's there's certainly character familiar faces perhaps slightly different in appearance than you're used to that are going to be showing up in both this books and, and my new series for adults which is coming up uh, as well so I like to to play with sort of the ancestors of characters or as I, I am writing with immortals you get to have exactly the same character but you get to show them and write them from a completely different main character's perspective. And so, you know, that main character might have a a different opinion on some of the old favorites. And that's really exciting. As an author, it's really exciting to write. Hmm. Um, well, let's talk about your research. Um, I assume that since you've already spent uh, so much time in this hybrid paranormal steampunk alternate history world, that you're you're fairly comfortable there. Uh, but since this book is set earlier, were you actively thinking about adjusting uh, the technology and the language and the characters' attitudes and things like that? Absolutely. Um, and specifically the technology. Since I, I do write steampunk, I really wanted to explore the idea of technological abandonment. Um, as an archaeologist, which was my previous career, I've always been really excited when cultures voluntarily abandon a technology of some kind. And there are hints in the Parasol Protectorate series that this has occurred in the past. So even though this world is behind the other, or you know, 20 years in the past, the technology, the steampunk technology is actually way more advanced. Hmm. And so you get these hints that, um, that during the course of these four books, you're going to learn why England sort of voluntarily abandoned this advanced technology. Um, and of course, it's going to be my main character, Sophronia's fault in the end. <laughs> but uh, so I'm having fun exploring how that's going to happen. And now what does your research uh, typically involve? Are you immersing yourself in Victoriana and fashion, history and science fiction and things like that? Yeah, I love primary sources. So I'm fortunate in that my grandparents were 
um, British. And so when, um, when my grandmother died, I inherited a lot of her books and a lot of those were, uh, primaries. So they're, um, actual Victorian books from the time period. And I'm, I particularly love travel journals and, um, sort of this, this genre of Victorian literature, which was things a young lady ought to know. So they're sort of advice books to young women. Um, and so I, I have a, a vast collection of those. And usually when I'm writing a first draft, that's what I'm reading uh, at night. That's kind of, I want that attitude to kind of color my voice um, as, a, as an author, the way I write. So I like to fill my head with those books. Some of them are so wonderfully absurd and ridiculous. And <laughs> that helps with the humor as well. Okay. Um, now, as you mentioned, uh, in addition to being an author, uh, you also have a background in archaeology. Is that something you're still actively involved with? Sadly, no. The author side of me, I had to make a choice and the author side won. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately for me, my department is really awesome. Um, and they basically said, anytime you want to come back. Um, so if this whole writing thing doesn't work out, I can, I can go back to digging things up. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there any particularly uh, memorable moments or travels from uh, your archaeological career? Well, it's had a strange effect on my writing in that I tend to sort of sneak things in and sneak places in that I visited long term and excavated in. So um, there's a site, there's an Etruscan site in the Parasol Protectorate books that is basically my site that I first excavated as a college student back in the day as an undergraduate. And um, I've had a lifelong fascination with Egypt. And so Egypt shows up. Um, in various books and parts of Egypt show up. I used to work at the Egyptian Museum here in San Jose. So they, they come up and then uh, you're going to see my last excavations were in Peru and there's going to be some Peruvian mythology that sneaks in at times and that kind of thing. So it's still there and it still works and it certainly helps with my uh, sort of research and ability to get a hold of information because I'm not afraid of calling up a, a university or tapping an expert, a PhD student or something and saying, hey, I'm writing a route, you know, 1890s India right now, and I just have no idea. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> so uh, um, I I'd certainly use my academic contacts. And uh, you know, speaking of the, the sensibility uh, and the tone of the book, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about the names. Uh, and I'm going to mangle them. I'm I'm sure. But we have you know Phineas B. Crow, uh, Dimity Plumley Tainmott. Uh, Lord Dingleproops. Are you just having a blast coming up with these? I love names. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed with them, actually. And often my names are, again, with the cookies or foreshadowing. So if you look up the name it on the internet or Google it, it might have some extra meaning or it might mean something in a different language, something mm -hmm. like that. Sometimes the characters, like Phineas B. Crow, that just happened. That was just his his name. Sometimes they'll tell me their names. Um, and sometimes I, I, I kind of have fun inventing them. But it's also a little bit of an ode to P.G. Woodhouse, mm. who I absolutely adore. He's one of the great comic writers of the last 200 years. And, um, and he has the most absurd names ever in his books. And sometimes, frankly, these names are straight out of the British aristocracy. Like, there, there really are people named like this. I'm reading a <laughs> a book about soldiering in Victorian times right now. And some of the names just make me snort with laughter. They're so, so silly. And they're real people's names. <laughs> um, now, is that is that something your readers have uh, come to expect from you? 
I think to a certain extent, yeah. And it's also, I give myself license to be silly because I just, I love being silly in real life. And so I, I don't see why you can't be silly in prose as well. And so the naming people something really, really silly also helps me keep each scene very lighthearted. Because if you have somebody named Lord Dingleproops, you know, walk striding into the room, it's really hard to to get really dark and gritty in that scene because there's someone named Lord Dingleproops <laughs> hanging around. Uh, so, um, you know, while there is this pervasive kind of sense of humor and fun in the book, uh, you know, there's also some commentary about the roles and expectations of women, uh, as well as racial and class barriers. Uh, were you aiming to represent typical Victorian attitudes here, despite the fantastical elements of the story? Yes, sl- slightly. I mean, a school that I have invented, this sort of uh, female assassin spy training school, would never have existed mm-hmm. in Victorian times. It just wouldn't have been possible. So I do take certain license, and I do take certain license from those historical characters that we know about who were women who were powerful, which tended to be widows. You usually had to marry and then have your husband die before you had any kind of power or autonomy. (laughs) Um, And I took away that requirement and gave a lot more power and autonomy to single women and younger women, which just wouldn't have existed. So I I am taking license. It's not historically completely historically accurate. But I also do want to comment a little bit on some of the, as I perceive, negative aspects of Victorian society. And I think because I use humor, I can get away with it in a way that's not, doesn't come off as preachy. Um, uh, But it does, it does confine me. Um, For example, I can't have uh, two characters end end up together if one of them is lower class and the other one is higher class. So I have to kind of, I do have to obey some of the rules of Victorian society and dodging them and having a character who is herself liminal and able to sort of step out of her own society and make an internal commentary on what's going on is, is a very fine line to tread. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was interesting that while espionage is so much a part of Mademoiselle Geraldine's uh, finishing school, uh, that etiquette and proper comportment are also critical, at least on the surface. I mean, do you think what the school is really about is sort of subverting that system? I think the school is about manipulating it, certainly. Um, I think what a lot of what they are being taught is how to go out into society and to pretend like you belong to that society but in fact have this internal power and this internal control and this ability to manipulate the world around you just by knowing all of these social cues. And I think Sophronia, the the main character, and what she's learning is that uh, idea, that concept. So when she's first recruited, she's like, what, what's going on? Why do I have to know how to curtsy properly? And as she learns more and more, she learns how just the different sort of levels of a curtsy and the way she tilts her head can give all of these social cues and can can pass off as an insult or as praise. And if you deepen your curtsy in such a way to a woman of or a man of society who's technically a little bit lower than you, but if you acknowledge them as slightly higher, then suddenly they feel really, really good and they feel like they have the upper hand. And so you can suddenly control that social situation. And I think in a way I'm, I'm sort of commenting on our own society today and how, you know, we also have these cues and signals that you might be able to read and think about a little bit more um, by looking at the way 
Sophronia is manipulating Victorian society. Hmm. And, uh, the, the paranormal aspects of the story sort of allowed for some exploration of prejudice and difference. Uh, is that something you also had in mind? Yes. And, and that's kind of a, a little bit, speaking purely as a writer, that's a little bit of a cheat. So I, it's also something I wanted to explore. So the, the Solace books, my main character is very much an outsider. Whereas um, in these books, Sophronia is normal. She, there's everything about her is, is ordinary and human. And so she gets to be part of essentially part of mainstream society. And so she gets to look at um, these others from within. And, and as sort of as a result of that, she can have a, a greater commentary on making her own kind of political choices. Do I want to be progressive, as, as it's called in my books, and accept vampires and werewolves? Or do I want to be conservative and reject them? And then the questions of, well, how do I make a moral judgment on these immortal races? And, you know, and Sophronia only knows her teachers, one of whom is a werewolf and one of whom is a vampire. And she thinks they're sort of decent sorts. But as the, as the books progress, she meets other werewolves and other vampires and they behave differently. And so, you know, she's test, she has to test her judgment of this whole element of society by meeting different kinds of individuals, which, we sort of all have to do in life and uh, and we'll see where her choices take her. And is it right that the next finishing school book arrives later this year? That's the rumor uh, <laughs> con- um, confirmed now that this, the next book, which is Curses and Conspiracies, is going to come out at the end of the year um, in November, just in time for Christmas. Ah. So you'll get two in one year, which is pretty exciting. Excellent. And uh, what else are you uh, keeping busy with at the moment? Well, right now we're we're trying to get a tour together for this book. So I'll be traveling mostly around the West Coast to go to various schools and libraries and bookstores. So I hope people will come and say hi. And uh, that's going to be, that'll be posted on my website and stuff like that. Um, and I just handed in the first new adult book that I've written, which is uh, called Prudence and which will come out at the beginning of next year. And that is in the future. So that's Solace in the Parasol Protectorate books are in the center and the Etiquette and Espionage and the Finishing School books are earlier in time. And this new series is going to be later in time. And in that series, I'm exploring what immortals are like in different parts of the empire and how the British empire is beginning to fold in on itself and collapse. Excellent. Um, well, I think that's the, uh, all the time we have for today, but uh, thank you again, Gail, for speaking with me. It's been a great time. Once again, I've been speaking with Gail Carriger, whose new book is Etiquette and Espionage, available in February from Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. <laughs>